This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. have to start this episode off with a funny set of coincidences. There's this wonderful podcast called Stuff You Missed in History Class, which does in-depth shows either on overlooked figures in history or events that show a different angle on our world than you get from the standard texts. And although they don't have a specific focus on queer history, they have intersected with a number of topics that I've covered on this podcast. Sometimes we've intersected very closely and entirely by coincidence. For example, I did a show on Afro-Ben back in February 2017. And they did a show on Afro-Ben the next month. I know it's complete coincidence because I'm sure they don't even know my podcast exists. And then in July of 2017, we both did shows on Catalina de Arauso. So when I listened to their show in May 2017 on the Ladies of Sankathen, I figured I needed to avoid scheduling that topic for a while. Just, you know to avoid looking like too much of a copycat. But any podcast about lesbian history will eventually get around to the ladies, and for reasons that I'm just about to explain, eventually became now. There are a number of running themes within my historic interests. Queer women are an obvious one for listeners of this podcast. But another one of my deep interests is the history of Wales and the Welsh language. It's an interest rooted in family history, although not particularly recent history. In 1711, Francis Jones and his family left their home in Pembrokeshire to sail to the New World and settle in Pennsylvania as part of the growing Quaker immigrant presence there. Francis Jones is my direct ancestor, and though the history of the family raises some questions about whether they were Welsh in origin, rather than simply living there for a few years before emigrating, the connection was directly responsible for my historic interest. That interest led to studying the Welsh language, both modern and historic, and to choosing Welsh history as the lens for my activities in historic recreation. And eventually, it led to me pursuing a PhD in historic linguistics, specializing in the medieval Welsh language. So any connection between queer women and Welsh history is naturally going to spark my interest. When I was scheduling articles for this summer's blog entries for the Lesbian Historic Motif Project, I stumbled across an article by Mihangel Morgan looking at queer themes in Welsh literature from the medieval period up through the present. And because I have a thing about celebrating round numbers, I decided to schedule that article as publication 200 in the blog, which posted just this last Monday. That was the best excuse I needed to tackle Lady Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponsonby, known as the Ladies of Llangollen, for the village in Wales where they settled after they eloped together from Ireland in 1778. That makes the parallel with my own Welsh family heritage even more parallel, because Francis Jones was recorded as living in Ireland before he appears in Pembrokeshire. When I made a trip to Wales in 1981 after finishing college, two of the places where I made a personal pilgrimage were the vanished village of Redstone, where the Jones family had lived before emigrating, and Plas Newydd in Llangollen, where Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponsonby lived together for nearly 50 years, 
celebrated by all who knew them as the epitome of a devoted romantic couple. There are many excellent sources that relate the overall story of Butler and Ponsonby. Wikipedia can give you the bare bones. Elizabeth Mauver's biography, The Ladies of St. Gothen, written in 1971, provides an excellent social and historical background to their lives, though she spends one bare page considering and dismissing the possibility that they might fall into the category of lesbian. Lillian Foderman's study of the phenomenon of romantic friendship, surpassing the love of men, discusses them extensively, but fixes on her belief that their relationship was non-sexual and therefore not classifiable as lesbian. Other scholars have provided a more nuanced view of the inherent queerness of Ponsonby and Butler's relationship, including Emma Donahue in Passions Between Women, Martha Vicinus in Intimate Friends, and Fiona Brydoke's online article, Extraordinary Female Affection, The Ladies of St. Gothen and the Endurance of Queer Community, in Romanticism on the Net. And of course, if you want to get your information from podcasts, you can always check out the episode from Stuff You Missed in History class that I've linked in the show notes. For that reason, I will give only the basic background, interspersed with primary source material, especially that written by their contemporaries and the people who met them. Lady Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponsonby were both members of the Anglo-Irish gentry, that is, descended from English families who had long ago been part of the English conquest of Ireland and who maintained something of a foot in both social worlds. Their families were close neighbors. When they met in 1768, Eleanor was 29 and considered something of a blue stocking. Sarah was much the younger when they met, at age 13, and they became close friends over the next decade, with Eleanor first serving as a mentor when Sarah was away at school. And then when Sarah returned home around age 18, deepening into romantic dreams of eloping together due to family difficulties. Eleanor was being pressured to enter a convent, since she clearly had no plans of marrying. And the orphaned Sarah was being importuned by her guardian, Sir William Founts, who evidently was not quite content to wait for the death of his wife before attempting to secure her replacement. So one night in March 1778, Eleanor and Sarah each snuck out of their homes, dressed in men's clothing, met at a prearranged location, having obtained horses, and set out for Waterford. This initial elopement suffered a setback due to weather and Sarah's consequent illness. A relative of Sarah's wrote in a letter, The runaways are caught, and we shall soon see our amiable friend again, that is, Sarah, whose conduct, though it has an appearance of imprudence, is, I am sure, void of serious impropriety. There were no gentlemen concerned, nor does it appear to be anything more than a scheme of romantic friendship. My mother has gone to Waterford for Miss Butler and her, and we expect to see them tonight. This did not dissuade the two, despite the efforts of their families. A month later, when Eleanor was allowed to visit Sarah once more, the same relative wrote in her journal, I talked again to Miss Ponsonby, not to dissuade her from her purpose, but to discharge my conscience of the duty I owed her as a friend by letting her know my opinion of Miss Butler and the certainty I had they would never agree living together. I spoke of her with harshness and freedom, said she had a debauched mind, no ingredients for friendship that ought to be founded on virtue, whereas hers every day more and more showed me was acting in direct opposition to it, as well as to the interest, happiness, and reputation of the one she professed to love. Sir W. joined us, kneeled, implored, swore twice on the Bible how much he loved her, would never more offend, was sorry for his past folly that was not meant as she understood it, 
offered to double her allowance of 30 pounds a year, or add what more she pleased to it, even though she did go. She thanked him for his past kindness, but nothing could hurt her more, or would she ever be under other obligation to him. Said if the whole world was kneeling at her feet, it should not make her forsake her purpose. She would live and die with Miss Butler, was her own mistress, and if any force was used to detain her, she knew her own temper so well it would provoke her to an act that would give her friends more trouble than anything she had yet done. She, however, haughtily, and as it were to get rid of him, made Sir W. happy by telling him if she, ever she was in distress for money, he should be the first she would apply to. They dined with us, and I never saw anything so confident as their behavior. But the Butler family, after much consideration, had relented, and now supported Eleanor in her plans to live somewhere in retirement with Sarah. Eleanor would have an allowance, and something resembling her family's blessing. Sarah's guardians capitulated, and two days later, this time dressed in ordinary feminine traveling clothes and accompanied by the housemaid Mary Carroll, who would be their companion until her death, they left in the Butler family carriage and set out on their adventure. To the extent that Sir William was a villain in their story, fate seems to have punished him, for before another month was out, he was dead of a sudden and painful ailment. Eleanor and Sarah were steeped in the culture of Romanticism, which looked to an idyllic rural seclusion away from the bustle of society, where they could improve themselves with literature and contemplation. And in the popular imagination of the day, there was no more ideal location for romantic retirement than northern Wales, as described in Thomas Pennant's travelogue, A Tour in Wales, published around the same time as their elopement. Pennant wrote of Llangollen Vale, I know of no scene in North Wales where the refined lover of picturesque scenes, the sentimental or the romantic, can give a fuller indulgence to his inclination. After deciding to settle permanently in Llangollen, Eleanor and Sarah moved into a cottage, though by cottage we mean a two-story building with a parlor and a library and room for servants, a place they named Plasnewith, that is, the new mansion which they eventually remodeled into a confection of neo-Gothic ornamentation and filled with all manner of souvenirs and curiosities brought to them by their visitors and admirers. Although the allowances they received from their families, eventually supplemented by a civil pension, could not be considered to make them wealthy, we mustn't imagine them living in poverty. Mary Carroll, who had stepped into the role of household manager, ensured that they found a balance between comfort and living within their income, in part by foregoing any personal salary of her own. A great many details of their lives come from the detailed journals they kept jointly, the sort of journals that record everyday events such as the weather, what they ate, their various ailments. Eleanor suffered regularly from what appeared to be migraines, and she recorded a typical experience in 1785. I kept my bed all day with one of my dreadful headaches. My Sally, my tender, my sweet love lay beside me holding and supporting my head till one o'clock. As recorded in their journals, their lives were quiet, congenial, busy with the everyday details of life, and involving nothing of any particular consequence. Their journals also emphasized their continuing resolution never to spend a day apart, and to try to avoid spending a single night away from their beloved Plasnewith. But though they obviously did not travel much, the world soon traveled to join them. And one of the reasons they have become icons is because of how those visitors reflected them to the wider world. 
Eleanor and Sarah's elopement and retirement so perfectly fit the prevailing visions and fantasies of the romantic imagination that they became something of a pilgrimage site for notables and literati of the day in the following decades, although by the end of their lives they were considered quaintly antiquated both in personal style and in their sentimental approach to life. Their visitors included writers such as poet Anna Seward, whose own romantic friendship was balked by her commitment to caring for her elderly father. Seward encapsulated the effusive romantic ideal with this long poem entitled Llangollen Vale, dedicated to Ponsonby and Butler. Luxuriant vale, thy country's early boast, what time great Glendor gave thy scenes to fame, taught the proud numbers of the English host how vain their vaunted force, when freedom's flame fired him to brave the myriads he abhorred, winged his unerring shaft and edged his victor sword. Here first, those orbs unclosing drank the light, Cambria's bright stars, the meteors of her foes, what dread and dubious omens marked the night that lowered, ere yet his natal morn arose. The steeds paternal on their caverned floor, foaming and horror struck, fret fetlock deep in gore, plague in her livid hand o'er all the isle, shook her dark flag impure with fetid stains, while death on his pale horse with baleful smile smote with its blazing hoof the frighted plains. Soon through the grass-grown streets in silence led, slow moves the midnight cart heaped with the naked dead. Yet in the festal dawn of Richard's reign, thy gallant Glendor's sunny prime arose, virtuous though gay in that Circean fane, bright science twinned here circlet round his brows, nor could the youthful, rash, luxurious king dissolve the hero's worth on his Icarian wing. Sudden it drops on its meridian flight. Ah, hapless Richard, never didst thou aim to crush primeval Britons with thy might, and there brave Glendor's tears embalm thy name. Back from thy victory, rivals vaunting throng, sorrowing and stern, he sinks Langothland's shades among. Soon, in imperious Henry's dazzled eyes, the guardian bounds of just dominion melt. His scarce-hoped crown imperfect bliss supplies, till Cambria's vassalage be deeply felt. Now, up her craggy steeps in long array, swarm his exulting bands, impatient for the fray. Lo, through the gloomy night, with angry blaze, trails the fierce comet, and alarms the stars. Each waning orb withdraws its glancing rays, save the red planet that delights in wars. Then, with broad eyes upturned and starting hair, gaze the astonished crowd upon its vengeful glare. Gleams the wan morn, and through Llangollen's vale, sees the proud army streaming o'er her meads. Her frighted echoes warning sounds assail, loud in the rattling cars, the neighing steeds. The doubling drums, the trumpets, piercing breath, and all the ensign's dread of havoc, wounds, and death. High on a hill, as shrinking Cambria stood and watched the onset of the unequal fray, she saw her diva stained with warrior blood through meads and glens and wild woods, echoing far the din of clashing arms and furious shout of war. From rock to rock, with loud acclaim, she sprung, while from her chief the routed legions fled, saw Deva roll their slaughtered heaps among, the checked waves eddying round the ghastly dead saw in that hour her own Llangollen claim, Thermopylae's bright wreath and eye-enduring fame. Thus consecrate to glory, then arose a milder luster in its blooming maze. Through the green glens where lucid Deva flows, rapt Cambria listens with enthusiast gaze, while more enchanting sounds her ear assail than thrilled on Sorga's brank the love-devoted vale. Mid the gay towers on steep Dean Brana's cone, her hull's breast the fair Mavanwi fires, 
O harp of Cambria, never hast thou known notes more mellifluent floating o'er the wires than when thy bard this brighter lowers sung, and with his ill-starred love Llangothlin's echoes rung. Though genius, love, and truth inspire the strains through holes veins, though blood illustrious flows hard as the egluistic rocks her heart remains, her smile a sunbeam playing on their snows, and naught avails the poet's warbled claim but by his well-sung woes to purchase deathless fame. Thus consecrate to love in ages flown, long ages fled Dinbranus ruins show, Bleak as they stand upon their steepy cone, the crown and contrast of the vale below, that screened by mural rocks with pride displays beauty's romantic pomp in every sylvan maze. Now with a vestal luster glows the vale, thine sacred friendship, permanent as pure, in vain the stern authorities assail, in vain persuasion spreads her silken lure. High-born and high-endowed, the peerless twain pant for coy nature's charms mid silent dale and plain. Through Eleonora and her Sarah's mind, early though genius, taste, and fancy flowered, though all the graceful arts their powers combined, and her last polish brilliant life bestowed, the lavish promiser in youth's soft morn, pride, pomp, and love her friends, the sweet enthusiasts scorn. Then rose the fairy palace of the vale, then bloomed around it the Arcadian bowers, screened from the storms of winter, cold and pale, screened from the fervors of the sultry hours. Circling the lawny crescent, soon they rose, to lettered ease, devote, and friendship's blessed repose. Smiling they rose beneath the plastic hand of energy and taste, nor only they obedient science hears the mild command, brings every gift that speeds the tardy day. Whate'er the pencil sheds in vivid hues, the historic tome reveals, or sings the raptured muse. How sweet to enter at the twilight gray, the dear, minute lyceum of the dome, when through the colored crystal glares the ray, sanguine and solemn mid the gathering gloom, while glowworm lamps diffuse a pale green light, such as in mossy lanes illume the starless night. Then the coy scene, by deepening veils o'erdrawn, in shadowy elegance seems lovelier still, tall shrubs that skirt the semi-lunar lawn, dark woods that curtain the opposing hill, while o'er their brows the bare cliff faintly gleams, and from its paley edge the evening diamond streams. What strains Aeolan thrill the dusk expanse, as rising gales with gentle murmurs play, wake the loud chords or every sense entrance, while in subsiding winds they sink away like distant choirs, when pealing organs blow, and melting voices blend, majestically flow. But ah, what hand can touch the strings so fine, who up the lofty diapson roll, such sweet, such sad, such solemn airs divine, then let them down again into the soul. The prouder sex as soon with virtue come might win from this bright pair pure friendship's spotless palm. What boasts tradition, what the historic theme stands it in all their chronicles confessed, where the soul's glory shines with clearer beam that in our sea-zoned bulwark of the West, when in this Cambrian vale virtue shows, where in her own soft sex its studious luster glows. Say, ivied Valacrucis, time decayed, dim on the brink of Deva's wandering floods, your rived arch glimmering through the tangled glade, your gray hills towering o'er your night of woods, deep in the vale's recesses as you stand, and desolately great the rising sigh command. 
Say, lonely ruined pile, where former years saw your pale train at midnight altars bow, saw superstition frown upon the tears that mourned the rash irrevocable vow, where one young lip gay Eleonora's smile, did Sarah's look serene one tedious hour beguile? For your sad sons, nor science waked her powers, nor e'er did art her lively spells display. But the grim idol vainly lashed the hours that dragged the mute and melancholy day, dropped her dark cowl on each devoted head, that o'er the breathing course a pall eternal spread. This gentle pair no glooms of thought infest, nor bigotry, nor envy's sullying gleam, shed withering influence on the effort blessed which most should win the other's dear esteem. By added knowledge, by endowment high, by charity's warm boon and pity's soothing sigh, then how should summer day or winter night seem long to them who thus can wing their hours? O oh, ne'er may pain or sorrow's cruel blight breathe the dark mildew through those lovely bowers, but lengthened life subside in soft decay, illumined by rising hope and faith's pervading ray. May one kind ice bolt from the mortal stores arrest each vital current as it flows, that no sad course of desolated hours here vainly nurse the unsubsiding woes, while all who honor virtue gently mourn Llangothlin's vanished pair and wreath their sacred urn. Wow, that's kind of over the top, isn't it? Other visitors were novelist Lady Carolyn Lamb, who was a Ponsonby by birth as well as her lover, poet Lord Byron. Visiting writers included Percy Shelley, Sir Walter Scott, and William Wordsworth, who wrote the following sonnet in their garden. A stream to mingle with your favorite dee along the vale of meditation flows, so styled by those fierce Britons, pleased to see in nature's face the expression of repose. Or haply there some pious hermit chose to live and die, the peace of heaven his aim, to whom the wild sequestered region owes at this late day its sanctifying name. Glyn Cavailgarach in the Cambrian tongue, in ours the veil of friendship let this spot be named, where faithful to a low-roofed cot on Deva's banks ye have abode so long, sisters in love, a love allowed to climb even on this earth above the reach of time. Their visitors were not confined to the world of literature. The Duke of Wellington visited, as well as industrialist Josiah Wedgwood of Wedgwood China fame. Queen Charlotte wanted to visit them to see their cottage and was sent a plan of their garden. And although that august visit never took place, the Queen was instrumental in granting them a pension to supplement the funds they received from their families. But not all their guests were celebrities. Eleanor's journal records visits from and to local neighbors among the gentry with the sorts of entertainments common in such households. Here's an excerpt. My beloved and I went to Hardwick. Mr. Kiniston met us at the hall door. In the hall we found Mrs. Kiniston, our Barretts, Miss Davies, the three Miss Piggots of Undervale, Miss Vaughan of Oatley Park, Miss Charlotte Istoyod, Miss Webb, a little Piggot girl, Dr. Boyd, Mr. Blakeway of Shrewsbury, drank tea in the cottage. Miss Webb spoke two prologues, a scene between Alicia and Jane Shore, and the first scene in Lady Randolph, I mean Douglas. Most divinely she looked and spoke, and I pronounced that for beauty and manner I seldom beheld her equal. It also seems that the fame of Plasnewood did not always mean that Ponsonby and Butler cared to be available to entertain personally. There are many diary entries of the following type. Quote, Compliments from Mr. and Mrs. Pope and Miss Saville, desiring to see the cottage and the shrubbery. They came. 
saw them from the state bedchamber window, whither we retired till they were gone. End quote. The ladies enjoyed visitors, but they also enjoyed their privacy, and not only that, but the social customs of the time meant that a visit generally required a personal reference from someone the ladies already knew and trusted. Thus we come to the first of an intriguing set of entries in 1822 in the diaries of Yorkshire gentlewoman Anne Lister. If you're listening to this podcast, I expect I don't need to explain who Anne Lister was. Tuesday, June 11th, Halifax. Wrote three pages of my letter to Isabel Dalton. Mentioned also, my aunt and I were taking a fortnight's tour in Wales and wished they knew anyone acquainted with Lady Eleanor Butler and Miss Ponsonby. Friday, June 28th, Halifax. Looking over Marianne's letters of 1820, fancying it was then that she and Lou took their two little tours in Wales. Found, however, that it was in June 1817. Took out her two letters descriptive and mean to take those with us when we go. Wrote to Marianne and asked several questions what she gave the gardener for showing Lady Eleanor Butler's and Miss Ponsonby's grounds at Flangachlan, etc. The Marianne referred to here is Anne's longtime and married lover, the woman she hoped, and still at that point hopes, to spend her life with. Monday, July 1st, Halifax. Letter from Isabella Dalton. Her father says no introduction to Lady Eleanor Butler and Miss Ponsonby will be necessary. Any literary person, especially calling on them, would be taken as a compliment. Anne, accompanied by her aunt, left on their trip on July 11th, had a brief assignation in Chester with Mary Anne, and then arrived in Llangollen two days later. Saturday, July 13th, Llangollen. Got here, the King's Head, New Hotel, Llangollen, patronized by Lady Eleanor Butler and Miss Ponsonby, in four and a half hours. Beautiful drive from Chester to Wrexham. It was market day, and the town seemed very busy. Beautiful drive also from Wrexham here, but I was perhaps disappointed with the first couple of miles of the Vale of Llangollen. The hills naked of wood and the white limestone quarries on our left certainly not picturesque. About three miles from Llangollen, when Castle Dinisbran came in sight, we were satisfied of the beauties of the valley, but the sun was setting on the castle and so dazzled our eyes we could scarce look that way. The inn, kept by Elizabeth Davies, is close to the bridge and washed by the River Dee. We are much taken with our hostess and with the place. have had an excellent roast leg of mutton and trout and very fine port wine, with every possible attention. We sat down to dinner at 8.30, having previously strolled through the town to Lady Eleanor Butler's and Miss Ponsonby's place. There is a public road close to the house, through the grounds, and along this we passed and repassed, standing to look at the house, cottage, which is really very pretty. A great many of the people touched their hats to us on passing, and we are much struck with their universal civility. A little girl, seeing us apparently standing to consider our way, showed us the road to Plasnevis, Lady Eleanor Butler's and Miss Ponsonby's, followed, and answered our several questions very civilly. A little boy then came, and we gave each of them all our halfpence, two pence each. After dinner, wrote the following note. To the Right Honorable Lady Eleanor Butler and Miss Ponsonby, Plasnevis. Mrs. and Miss Lister take the liberty of presenting their compliments to Lady Eleanor Butler and Miss Ponsonby, and of asking permission to see their grounds at Plasnewith in the course of tomorrow morning. Miss Lister, at the suggestion of Mr. Banks, had intended herself the honor of calling on her ladyship and Miss Ponsonby, and hopes she may be allowed to express her very great regret at hearing of her ladyship's indisposition. The message returned was that we should see the grounds at twelve tomorrow. 
This will prevent our going to church, which begins at eleven and will not be over till after one. The service is principally in Welsh, except the lesson and sermon every second Sunday, and tomorrow is the English day. Lady Eleanor Butler has been couched. She ventured out too soon and caught cold. Her medical man, Mr. Lloyd-Jones, positively refuses her seeing anyone. Her cousin, Lady Mary Ponsonby, passed through not long ago and did not see her. They did indeed visit the gardens the next day, and then traveled some more in the vicinity, seeing Conway Castle and Mount Stoden, had dinner and listened to a Welsh harper in Carnarvon, and among other sights before returning to Llangollen. Tuesday, July 23rd, Llangollen. A drop or two of rain just after setting off, and a shower for about the third mile from Llangollen. Heavy rain just after we got in. Mrs. Davies received us at the door and came into our rooms to answer our inquiries after Lady Eleanor Butler. Mrs. Davies was called up at one last night, and they thought her ladyship would have died. She was, however, rather better this morning. The physician does not seem to apprehend danger, but Mrs. Davies is alarmed and spoke of it in tears. Miss Ponsonby, too, is alarmed and ill herself on account of this. Pain in her side. She is a lady, said Mrs. Davies, of very strong ideas, but this would grieve her, too. Mrs. Davis had only known them thirteen or fourteen years, during which time she had lived at this house, but she had always seen them so attached, so amiable together. No two people ever lived more happily. They like all the people about them, are beloved by all, and do a great deal of good. Lady Eleanor has the remains of beauty. Miss Ponsonby was a very fine woman. Lady Eleanor Butler about eighty, Miss Ponsonby ten or twelve years younger. The damp this bad account cast on my spirits I cannot describe. I am interested about these two ladies very much. There is a something in their story, and in all I have heard about them here, that, added to other circumstances, makes a deep impression. Mrs. Davies just returned, brought a good account of her ladyship, and a message of thanks for our inquiries from Miss Ponsonby, who will be glad to see me this evening to thank me in person. Shall go about six or seven, just after dinner. This is more than I expected. At seven, went to Plasnoweth and got back at eight, just an hour away, and surely the walking there and back did not take more than twenty minutes. Shown into the room next the library, the breakfast room, waiting a minute or two, and then came Miss Ponsonby. A large woman, so as to waddle in walking, but though not taller than myself, in a blue, shortish-waisted cloth habit, the jacket unbuttoned, showing a plain, plaited, frilled habit shirt, a thick white cravat, rather loosely put on, hair powdered, parted, I think, down the middle in front, cut a moderate length all round, and hanging straight, tolerably thick. The remains of a very fine face. Coarsish white cotton stockings, ladies' slipper shoes, cut low down, the foot hanging a little over. Altogether a very odd figure. Yet she had no sooner entered into conversation than I forgot all this, and my attention was wholly taken by her manners and conversation. The former, perfectly easy, peculiarly attentive and well, and bespeaking a person accustomed to a great deal of good society. Mild and gentle, certainly not masculine, and yet there was a je ne sais quoi striking. Her conversation showing a personal acquaintance with most of the literary characters of the day and their works. She seemed sanguine about Lady Eleanor's recovery, poor soul. My heart aches to think how small the chance. Mentioned the beauty of the place the books I had noticed in the rustic library. She said Lady Eleanor read French, Spanish, and Italian, had great knowledge of ancient manners and customs, understood the obsolete manners and phrases of Tasso remarkably well, 
had written elucidatory notes on the first two or four, I think, books of Tasso, but had given away the only copy she ever had. Contrived to ask if they were classical. No, she said. Thank God, from Latin and Greek I am free. Anne records their further discussion of classical literature in great detail for a couple of paragraphs, which I shall skip. She asked if I would walk out, showed me the kitchen garden, walked round the shrubbery with me. She said she owned to their having been 42 years there. They landed first in South Wales, but it did not answer to the accounts they had heard of it. Then they traveled in North Wales, and, taken with the beauty of this place, took the cottage for 31 years, but it was a false lease, and they had had a great deal of trouble and expense. It was only four years since they had bought the place. Dared say I had a much nicer place at home, mentioned its situation, great age, long time in the family, etc. She wished to know where to find an account of it, said it had been their humble endeavor to make the place as old as they could, spoke like a woman of the world about my liking the place where I was born, etc., said I was not born there. My father was a younger brother, but that I had the expectation of succeeding my uncle. Ah, yes, said she. You will soon be the master, and there will be an end of romance. Never, never, said I. I envied their place and the happiness they had there. Asked if, dared say, they had never quarreled. No, they had never had a quarrel. Little differences of opinion sometimes. Life could not go on without it, but only about the planting of a tree, and when they differed in opinion, they took care to let no one see it. At parting, shook hands with her, and she gave me a rose. I said I should keep it for the sake of the place where it grew. She had before said she should be happy to introduce me sometime to Lady Eleanor. I had given my aunt's compliments and inquiries, said she would have called with me but feared to intrude, and was not quite well this evening. She, Miss Ponsonby, gave me a sprig of geranium for my aunt with her compliments and thanks for her inquiries. Lady Eleanor was asleep while I was there. Miss Ponsonby had been reading to her, Adam Blair, the little book recommended to me by Marianne at Chester. I had told Miss Ponsonby I had first seen an account of them in La Belle Assembly a dozen years ago and had longed to see the place ever since. I came away much pleased with Miss Ponsonby and sincerely hoping Lady Eleanor will recover to enjoy a few more years in this world. I know not how it is. I felt low after coming away. A thousand moody reflections occurred, but again, writing has done me good. I mean to dry and keep the rose Miss Ponsonby gave me. Anne and her aunt left Llangollen the next day and were back in Halifax three days later, but her visit lingered in her thoughts. Monday, July 29th, Halifax. Crossed the first page of the first sheet written to Marianne yesterday. Determined to send it this morning that you may have an account of our arrival at home. The ends of my paper contain the following. Charmed as I am with the landscape and loveliness of the country, I do not envy it for home. I should not like to live in Wales, but if it must be so, and I could choose the spot, it should be Plasnewydd at Llangollen, which is already endeared to me by the association of ideas. And then, several days later, Anne recounts Marianne's response. She seems much interested about Lady Eleanor Butler and Miss Ponsonby, and I am agreeably surprised, never dreaming of such a thing, at her observation. Quote, the account of your visit is the prettiest narrative I have read. You have at once excited and gratified my curiosity. Tell me if you think their regard has always been platonic, and if you ever believed pure friendship could be so exalted. If you do, I shall think there are brighter amongst mortals than I ever believed there were." Unquote. Anne then adds her own thoughts in conclusion. I cannot help thinking that surely it was not platonic. 
Heaven forgive me, but I look within myself and doubt. I feel the infirmity of our nature, and hesitate to pronounce such attachments uncemented by something more tender still than friendship. But much, or all, depends on the story of their former lives, the period passed before they lived together, that feverish dream called youth. Anne Lister had experienced regard for and from women that was definitely other than platonic. And given her failure to secure a life together with Marianne, one can understand her fascination with the life that Butler and Ponsonby had succeeded in building for themselves. Did Anne Lister have an accurate insight into Butler and Ponsonby's relationship? Or were her observations wishful thinking, the association of ideas that she mentions? There is nothing in Butler and Ponsonby's own journals that comes close to the frank sexuality of Lister's diaries. There is a great deal of physical affection, and they constantly used the language of marriage to describe their relationship, which was a common characteristic of romantic friendships. In that case, does it matter what the nature of their physical relationship was? In Lillian Fatterman's study of romantic friendship, she puts a great deal of weight on the question of sexual activity. That is, sexual activity of the sort that Lister clearly was enjoying. And from the other side, a great many people have invested in the notion that to suggest that Butler and Ponsonby were lesbians would be to besmirch their memory. Their contemporary and eventual neighbor, Hester Thrail Piozzi, had rather harsh things to say about any lady, quote, suspected for liking her own sex in a criminal way, unquote, and considered herself expert at identifying and calling out women of that sort. She enjoyed a long, comfortable friendship with the ladies that would appear to contradict any suspicion in that direction. And yet, later in life, in an obscure diary entry, Hester referred to the two as, quote, damned sapphists, unquote. A curious contradiction. Ponsonby and Butler were aware of the possibility that their relationship might be interpreted in scandalous terms. In 1790, an article about them in the General Evening Post described the pair in terms that evoked stereotypes of a butch-like mannish partner and her more conventionally feminine companion. Quote, Miss Butler is tall and masculine. She always wears a riding habit, hangs her hat with the air of a sportsman in the hall, and appears in all respects as a young man, if we accept the petticoats which she still retains. Miss Ponsonby, on the contrary, is polite and effeminate, fair and beautiful. They live in neatness, elegance, and taste. Two females are their only servants. Miss Ponsonby does the duties and honors of the house, while Miss Butler superintends the gardens and the rest of the grounds. End quote. The description is particularly curious, given that sketches and descriptions of them by those who knew the pair show them as both dressing almost identically in riding habits, with somewhat antiquated powdered hair and tall hats. But Eleanor was disturbed enough by the implications of this description that she sought legal advice from a friend regarding the advisability of bringing suit. The friend's advice suggested that it was better to ignore the matter rather than to call more attention to it. But one can't necessarily take Eleanor's response as evidence of innocence of the implication. Legal action with regard to one's reputation was a matter of what one allowed to be said, not about truth and falsehood. If Butler and Ponsonby knew that the private details of their life would not bear public scrutiny, that would be all the more reason to take action against those who suggested it. Since I chose this topic in part because of my own personal engagement with the ladies of Flingothlin, I'll offer my position that the question of the precise nature of their relationship is unimportant. 
the shape of their lives is a lesbian-like shape. They eloped together, swearing to spend their lives together, an oath that they were lucky enough to carry out. They called each other beloved and spouse. Their friends accepted and celebrated their union as being the equivalent of marriage. To suggest that an absence of sex from their lives makes their union less of a marriage is a slap in the face to many couples today for whom sex is not the defining characteristic of their lives. To suggest that the presence of sex in their lives somehow besmirches and degrades their memory is a slap in the face to all the people who have fought for the legal and social right to enjoy the sexual relationships they choose. The ladies of Slangothlin are lesbian icons, not because of how they would or would not identify themselves, but because of that association of ideas that Anne Lester so eloquently identified, because of what they represent for us and for our place in history. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider supporting our Patreon 